0: It goes deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in astro-orbit. And the little dynamo, the Toy Cannon, now has 76 runs batted of the year. What a shot.
1: Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode four of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragipothi. And I'm Jacob Wessels. And after a couple episodes of just doing the two of us to try and work out some kinks, We're back to a panel of three. We've got a new partner here. Say hi, Jimmy.
0: How's it going, guys? I am honored to be here, and uh, I'm very excited for everybody's stories today. I think they're going to be really good.
1: Yes, and honored you should be. So in case you didn't know, this is Jimmy Arvan with us. Jimmy, you know about the basic premise of this thing. Is there anyone that you grew up watching that you really loved as an athlete, but doesn't get talked about nearly enough for your liking?
0: I think there are a lot of different answers, but I'm actually going to go the hockey route with this one. And I'm going to say Simone Gagne when he was on the Flyers. I just remember him being such an electrifying player. He was so fast. He made defenders look like they were stuck in mud on the ice. And I just remember distinctly when I was younger, he was virtually unstoppable.
1: Yeah, he was awesome. Really fun to watch. He was kind of the
0: predecessor to guys like Mike Richards and Claude Giroux, who were the faces of the franchise, but who didn't necessarily get a ton of of national respect.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel that way a lot about Claude Giroux. He's kind of been the captain of the Flyers for like a decade. he had been one of the best players in hockey, but he definitely doesn't get the national Respect is one of them, you know, perennial all-star kind of guy. I mean, people just don't think of Claude Giroux when they think of the best NHL players. And I think that kind of applies to Simon Gagné as well.
0: Yeah, so that would that would, that would be my answer.
1: Through the bed, got David to get suspended Cone. for that. Barry Lyons wrestling Pedro away from Cone. That was a breaking was ball. a curveball for crying out loud. Oh, well, that is serious, though. that bad at that pitcher. Pedro Guerrero was anything and everything over the course of his career. Selfless and selfish, humble and jaded, valuable and expendable, a beloved jovial team leader in a locker room cancer, a party animal who often played hungover, and a family man who would motion to his wife in the stands after every home run. He was a goat who would shrink when it mattered, and he was a clutch hero. Guerrero came from San Pedro de Macoris, a province in the Dominican Republic that seems to only contain day laborers and baseball stars. Again, Guerrero was both. He dropped out of school in his early teens to cut sugarcane and help support his family. His pay was under $3 a day. But on the weekends, he wowed onlookers with his powerful bat, enough to get signed at age 16. He came up through a Dodgers organization in the late 70s that was stacked at the big league level. As an infielder, he hardly stood a chance. The quartet of Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, Ron Say, and Bill Russell stuck together from 1973 to 1981. As a result, Guerrero spent parts of seven seasons in the minors, despite regularly OPSing in the 900s or higher. He finally got a full shot in 1981. And while everyone in L.A. was wrapped up in Fernando mania, Guerrero tore up the league. Through mid-June, his OPS was 925. But then the strike began. Guerrero and the Dodgers limped into the playoffs. He struggled still as the Dodgers eked out victories in their first two series. And he went hitless in the first two games of the World Series. Both Dodger losses. But then when the series returned to L.A., Guerrero returned to life. It started slowly with an RBI double that tied Game 3, an eventual Dodger win. Then in Game 4, Guerrero went 2-for-3 with a walk to help tie the series at two games apiece. In Game 5, Guerrero and Steve Yeager jacked back-to-back home runs in the seventh inning of a 2-1 L.A. win. Game 6 was the masterpiece a two rbi triple the left center then in the sixth a single with the bases loaded scored two finally he put a bow on the series with an eighth inning solo shot eight total bases five rbi and 1179 ops for the series he shared the mvp award with steve yeager and ron say becoming the first dominican player ever to win the award in just his second season still somehow he faced trade rumors that winter L.A. almost shipped him to San Diego for Ozzie Smith. He responded with a 156 OPS plus and the first 30-homer, 20-steal campaign in Dodger history. In 83, he registered the Dodgers' second-ever 30-20 season. But his brash nature almost got him killed. When he thought a Houston pitcher had a at his teammate's head, Guerrero charged the mound and declared, he's in trouble. The next day, Nolan Ryan beamed Guerrero in the head and cracked his helmet. I thought it was dead, Guerrero said. He asked Ryan to sign it after the game. In 1984, Guerrero, who was once cutting sugarcane for $2.60 a day, inked the largest contract in Dodger history to that point. Five years, $7 million. In 1985, he was nothing short of miraculous. In June, he OPS nearly 1,300 and hit 15 home runs. In July, his OPS was even better and he had a streak of 14 straight plate appearances where he reached base. He led the majors with a 182 OPS plus, and he accumulated eight wins above replacement in 85. In 87, he registered the Dodgers' highest batting average in a quarter century, but his outspoken nature began causing rifts in the locker room. Once, when he called out Mike Marshall for not playing through injury, the two got in a fight. The next year, his clowning rankled the newly acquired Kirk Gibson. At one point in 88, David Cohn threw multiple pitches inside on him. When a curveball finally hit him, Guerrero hurled his entire bat at Cohn. The Dodgers had had enough. They traded Guerrero at the deadline and went on to win the World Series, sparked by Kirk Gibson's Game 1 heroics. 1989 was his last great year. He led the league at doubles. He had a career-high 117 RBI, finished third in MVP voting. That was the fourth top-four finish of his career. Best of all, his teammates loved him. They said he carried him on his back all the time. Bill James once called him the best hitter God's made in a while. Others called him the best hitter of the 80s. Still, he often disparaged teammates in quotes the press and made countless outlandish statements. The problem with writers, he once said, is they write what I say and not what I think. I think they had the tough task of trying to write what he was when he was everything at
2: all times. Yeah, it was interesting about him being the best hitter of the 80s because you definitely can make a case for it. In the 80s,
1: from 1980 to 1989, he had an OPS plus of 148.
0: He still managed to make it 15 years, though. He spent three decades.
1: Yeah, and the thing was, he got signed when he was 16. He didn't make it up to a full season in the majors till he was 25.
0: Played seven years in the minors. That's exactly. a long time.
1: Like, and, he, and it wasn't like he just languished there because he sucked. He played seven years in the minors and tore it up year after year. He kept getting cups of coffee, but like they were winning pennants in 77 and 78. They had the longest tenured infield of all time. I mean, it feels a little
0: bit like the Dodgers now. They don't even need the prospects that they have coming up just because their entire infield and outfield is basically set.
2: I mean, just in general, this is like the second time we've talked about just on this show the Dodgers having an infield that was so set they just had to keep guys stuck in the minor leagues because it was the same way with them when they had you know their infield in the, in the 50s.
1: Yeah, when uh, Jim Gentile couldn't break through. Yeah, so I've got a couple Pedro Guerrero stories. In his first at-bat ever, he replaced Rick Sutcliffe and got a pinch hit single. Ten years later, Sutcliffe threw at his chin, and Guerrero flipped his bat and said, if you want me, come get me. And then after the game, Sutcliffe came and got him. Like that Rockets-Clippers game a couple of years ago, he went into the Dodger clubhouse looking to pick a fight with Pedro Guerrero.
2: See, and now I have to imagine that Mike Marshall is the one who's knocking on the clubhouse door, but he's on the, the wrong door like Clint Capella.
1: <laughs> Pedro Guerrero's mouth wrote a lot of checks. I'm sure
2: that he could cash some of them. But... Yeah, he was, I mean, some, anyone who has their head thrown at twice that we've already heard about, I'd imagine has, has done a lot in his career to piss people off.
1: He once said, I would have put up better numbers and been a better person. I'm not a bad guy, but I used to come to the ballpark with a hangover every day, and I could still play like that. Can you imagine if I had been sober 100% of the time? The guy's yeah. at PS Plus was 50% better than the league for a decade, and he was hungover every day at the ballpark.
0: I feel like that was kind of a pregame ritual, though. Everybody comes... To the clubhouse a couple hours before the game. They talk about what they did the previous night and they all like chug Gatorade together, if that was the thing back then. And they all get ready for the game and then they do it again.
1: Sure. Except in the 80s, you know, with their Gatorade, they had plenty of sugar, one could say.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
1: Once in 1992, when he was old and aging, he was playing for the Cardinals. They're playing their arch rival Cubs. After the game, he brought a young kid on the Cubs also from San Pedro de Macariz, to the Cardinals' clubhouse. So he could kind of like talk to him and give him a little bit of mentoring. Well, Cardinal Todd Worrell didn't take to this too kindly. And so he didn't let the kid in. And he confronted Pedro Guerrero about this. And Pedro Guerrero like leapt over a table and like flailed at him while fighting him. And Worrell kind of pretty easily like caught him and then deposited him in a locker Pedro Guerrero later said, yeah, no, I was wrong. I probably shouldn't have brought the kid in. That kid was
2: Sammy Sosa. I figured you were going there. It like, has to Pedro be somebody Paul. famous. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's unbelievable, though. Yeah, Todd
2: was a big guy. He was like one of the first fireballers. I was looking at his size. He's 6'5", so I can imagine him kind of throwing Pedro Yeah, Pedro, Pedro Guerrero was like
1: 5'11". That's funny, because I I hadn't even looked
0: at his height or weight, and for whatever reason, I pictured him as a big guy. I pictured Pedro Guerrero as, like,
2: 6'2", 6'3", and closer to 200 pounds. Pedro Guerrero, not afraid to fight people larger than him. Mike Marshall is
1: 6'6". And Nolan Ryan is, you know, like, 6'5", or something like that. He's huge. He plays bigger than he is. Exactly. Yeah, he plays a big game. Now, here's the craziest story. Around, like, 1999... So when he's been out of the league for, you know, four or five years, he agreed to put forth $200,000 for this drug smuggling operation that was going to bring in like 15 kilos of cocaine. And he talked about this with the people that were part of the plan. But it turned out one of the people who was in on this was part of a sting operation, was with the DEA. So he pretty much told Everything, multiple times, to a wired DEA agent. His lawyer was like, you know, other than his multiple confessions and him being caught on tape saying specific things, they've got nothing on him. His defense attorney came up so clutch, this guy Milton Hirsch. He convinced the jury of Pedro Guerrero's innocence within just like a few hours because he claimed that Pedro Guerrero had an IQ of 70, and he could not execute normal everyday tasks like writing checks or making his bed. His wife pretty much had to run his life and gave him a daily allowance of things. So clearly, because the only thing that he really knew how to do was hit a baseball, he couldn't have known what he was getting into when he agreed to this $200,000 drug operation. And it got him off. Wow. Got off spot free, <laughs> claiming that he was nearly right about at the line of being mentally challenged. I that's, mean, uh, that's unbelievable
0: to me. That's that's how how is that possible?
1: How persuasive can Milton Hirsch be? How like Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah, now I want to look at can we get Milton Hirsch on that, the podcast? Can we That is <laughs> far to go that he can't even make his own bed?
2: <laughs> and yet,
1: he can hit. He can play fifteen years in the major leagues.
2: Yeah, and played many positions. He was, you know, a utility guy. That's you know, see this. This defense
1: really rested on the fact that Guerrero, like a lot of kids of the Dominican, had to leave school early to go try and support his family and work.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, cutting sugarcane. And so, I think that like a lot of the defense really rested on that and. I think it really rested on the fact that he did not have much book learning because he left school so early. But he's obviously not a low functioning individual. He can make his own bed. I guarantee you that. I've never met the guy. I can guarantee you he knows how to make his own bed.
2: I will say maybe getting hit in the head all those times is why David event, is why Pedro Guerrero eventually couldn't make his bed. <laughs> Take a few Nolan Ryan fastballs, David Cohn curveball, Rick Sutcliffe, yeah. all of a sudden it's, you know.
1: One Nolan Ryan fastball to the head can probably drop your IQ. My final Pedro Guerrero story comes much more recently. He was in the headlines a couple years ago because he suffered a pretty big stroke and it landed him in the hospital in a coma. His wife was asked by the doctors to sign a release that would end up having the plug pulled on him, and it wasn't looking very good. His wife decided not to, said that she had faith, and two days later, miraculously, Pedro Guerrero woke up. He woke up out of his coma, and he was pretty much okay. He's probably still able to make his bed. His wife said it was a miracle, and I think it really goes to show that whenever you think that Pedro Guerrero is one thing, he's exactly the opposite.
2: Colt Brennan threw for 415 yards and six touchdowns. Get this in the first half of Hawaii's opener against Northern Colorado. (laughs) Do you take that performance
1: seriously, or does it seem awfully Klingler-esque to you? No, this is the best quarterback in the country. This is the best pro material in the country. Jimmy is the first in the history of the canon to come to us with someone other than a baseball player.
2: And this is just the start of the fun in terms of wacky things about to happen on this episode.
1: Oh yeah, we're about to expand the powers of the canon a
2: whole lot.
0: So I'm going to set the scene with an ESPN headline that ran in the fall of 2007, and it read, Unbeaten, Record-Breaking, Western Athletic Conference Champion, BCS Bound. And those words are normally reserved for the Boise State Broncos, which is a program that up until that point had begun to shatter expectations about what a non-power conference team could accomplish in the BCS era of college football. This time around, however, that headline was reserved for the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors which is by far one of the best mascot names out there. Their 39-27 victory of the Broncos in the 2007 season was the team's 11th win, moving them one step closer to securing an undefeated regular season record and locking them to the lone BCS bowl slot, which was reserved for non-group of five teams. For a program that, while not unsuccessful, had occupied relative obscurity for its entire century-long existence, this was a high point back-to-back double digit season wins, an undefeated regular season after defeating Washington the following week and successfully relegating their conference's tyrant squad to Hawaii's usual postseason stomping grounds, the Hawaii Bowl. Oh, and their quarterback was in New York on the stage for the Heisman Trophy ceremony. Who was this mythical being that had made it from the pineapple to the big apple? He was a gunslinging, dark visor-wearing, Hawaiian islands dyed into his bleach-blonde hair-having maverick. And his name is Colt Brennan. So Colt Brennan began his football career at Mater D High School, which is one of the premier programs in the nation, and it's located in Southern California, and their starting quarterback at the time was a young phenom named Matt Leinart. So Colt Brennan was relegated to a second string role for basically his entire high school career, but that didn't stop him from turning hands right away. Legend has it that Brennan led the second team offense to a victory over the leinert led Mater D first team in an inter-squad scrimmage. Which is impressive, but it really wasn't enough to turn the heads of major Division I programs because he never saw the field. So he did something that I actually didn't know you could do. Uh, He went to another high school in Massachusetts, which was a boarding school, but he just played an extra year of football. Following that one season in Massachusetts, he still wasn't receiving scholarship offers that he was really excited about, so he decided to walk on to the football team at the University of Colorado. In his first semester on campus, Brennan was convicted of felony and burglary charges for supposedly entering a female's room while intoxicated. He was placed on probation until his graduation, and he was ultimately removed from the team without ever playing a snap. And unfortunately, as we'll talk about, this is just the beginning of Brennan's legacy with run-ins with the law, but the unlawful sexual behavior charges were eventually dropped due to lack of evidence, and he successfully passed a court-mandated lie detector test as he continued to deny all allegations against him. So after he passed the lie detector test, he was able to return to California to play at a community college called Saddleback College. And following that season, Brennan was convinced by June Jones to walk on again at Hawaii. And he forwent scholarship opportunities at Syracuse and San Jose State. So Vic, he could have been playing for your Orange had he not been convinced by Coach Jones to walk on at Hawaii.
1: Wow, he could have led us to so many pinstripe bowls. It would have been crazy. Yeah,
0: really. He would have gone 8-5 and five every year. So now he's in Hawaii, and it's important to understand who came before Colt Brennan at the University of Hawaii. That was a man named Timmy Chang, who is a product of the now-famous quarterback powerhouse known as St. Louis High School, which has since produced Tua Tagovailoa and Marcus Mariota, among others. By the time he left, Chang had set the NCAA record for most career passing yards with 17,072. He was a generational talent, especially for a program like Hawaii, and he had led them to four straight seasons fate-plus wins, which was really impressive. Colt Brennan had big shoes to fill, and he filled them. His career began in 2005, and even though he didn't start the first two games of the campaign, he would finish the year having eclipsed 11 school records. He led the country in total yards and touchdown passes. Prior to the 2006 season, Brennan had succeeded in capturing the nation's imagination for that very reason. He was this junior QB who two years ago was a virtual unknown in the college football world and who was a lie detector test away from seeing his football career end. And now he's gracing the cover of ESPN magazine and running the offense of June Jones, who had just helped the previous QB torch almost every offensive NCAA record imaginable. So expectations were very high heading into 2006. And of course, he goes and leads the nation in scoring and passing efficiency, tying the season touchdown record in a Hawaii Bowl win over Arizona State with the team finishing 11-3. He finished sixth in Heisman voting, and the Warriors headed into the 2007 season ranked for the first time in program history. And by the end of their undefeated campaign in 2007, were ranked number 10 in the AP Bowl. And that BCS Bowl that they got locked into? Only the Sugar Bowl, playing against the number four Georgia Bulldogs in the Superdome. That year, Brennan finished third in the Heisman voting, behind only Tim Tebow and Darren McFadden. And by that point, had blown Timmy Chang's legacy out of the water. So at this point, it's 2007, 2008, His draft stock is pretty high. He's in conversations to be selected in the second or third round of the NFL draft, and he's playing in a BCS Bowl on basically the biggest stage that a program like Hawaii can conceivably get to. But there were obviously a lot of skeptics heading into the game that a team playing against one of the weakest schedules in college football could handle a team like Georgia. And it went about as poorly as you could have hoped it would. Uh, Georgia ended up winning 41 to 10. And by the end of the game, Brennan wasn't even in. He had thrown for 169 yards. Georgia was getting pressure through the Hawaii offensive line for the entire game. And it really wasn't a context that unfortunately caused his draft stock to plunge following his performance in the Sugar Bowl. After playing in the Senior Bowl, he played very poorly and he also tore his labrum and it was revealed at his pro day that he would require surgery. In a matter of mere weeks, after setting the college football world on fire, it was a question of whether or not he would even be drafted at all. Ultimately, In the 2008 NFL Draft, he was the 10th quarterback selected in the 6th round by the Washington Redskins. And he kind of silenced doubters with what people were calling like a perfect preseason. Some were calling it the greatest preseason debut ever after he went 9 for 10 with 125 yards and 2 touchdowns against the Colts. He still sat behind and injured Jason Campbell for the 2008 season. And in 2009, he suffered yet another hip injury. A huge problem for him was some of his off-field stuff. The first was when he was released by the Raiders. He was in Hawaii, and he was involved in a head-on collision in a vehicle on Queen Kahumanu Highway. The driver was not Brennan, but his girlfriend, and Brennan was in the hospital for eight days. He suffered broken ribs, broken collarbone, um, a whole bunch of different other surgeries that went on to really cripple his playing
2: career. Yeah, it's it's the kind of story that makes me wish the XFL was going to stick around for longer than the five weeks that it survived. Because, you know, Cole Brennan is exactly the kind of player who, you know, if he was playing today, probably would have wound up in the XFL and maybe playing for his former head coach, June Jones.
0: And think about how perfect a match would be. Just light that lead on fire, and in reality, assuming that he had been healthy, he might have been able to play himself into an NFL job. That probably wouldn't have been out of the realm of possibility.
1: There is like a few what-ifs to if he was just born a few years later. For one thing, if he wasn't born the same year as Matt Leinart, maybe he would get a starting job for at least a couple years at modern day. For another thing, if he was born a few years later, maybe he would graduate into an NFL that adopts the college style spread offense. That's- yeah,
0: I think you I think you're absolutely right because if you just watch some of his highlights that are that are on YouTube, he's making plays that are really reminiscent of guys like Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes because, you know, he was a guy that liked to get out of the pocket. He was a guy that was viewed as a playmaker, you know, he was constantly rolling out. He didn't really get the ball out of his hands very quick and that was one of the biggest critiques of him, especially entering into the NFL. In the mid-2000s, when the pocket passer was really still the biggest thing that scouts were looking for. But he definitely was also not a perfect guy off the field. Um, In 2013, he pled guilty to a DUI while driving a rental car after he was stopped for speeding, which doesn't sound that bad, but um, his blood alcohol content at the time was twice the legal limit. But he was also arrested for possession of cocaine, which was discovered in the rental car. But he eventually avoided those charges after he was able to convince prosecutors that the cocaine was not his and was already in the rental car.
1: A trunk full of coke, rental
0: car from Avis. Um, I don't have as much detail about how this was done compared to the Pedro Guerrero story, but he kind of also has the legacy of avoiding charges by kind of just convincing people that he was innocent. He did it at Colorado and then he did it again with this cocaine possession case. And then it happened again. In 2015, when Brennan reported to the police that his car had been stolen, when police later found the car near a bar, it was revealed through surveillance footage that Brennan was the one who had parked the car there and (laughs) abandoned it. And then his defense lawyers claimed that the crime was committed because of the trauma-related injury that goes back to his car crash, but it's punishable by a year in jail and a $2,000 fine. And I did a lot of searching, but I could not find what ended up happening with the trial. It wasn't published in any news outlets, so maybe he got off of that one too. I don't know. At
2: some point, people just have to realize that this man
1: could beat a polygraph. Did he have Milton Hirsch coaching him through (laughs) through
0: these incidents? He might have.
1: It's like, okay, now if that fails, tell them that your IQ is 65. (laughs) Exactly. Uh. Tell them he had to take five years of high school. (laughs) (laughs) And then then finally, he again popped up on police scanners
0: in 2019 and was again arrested for a DUI. And he has since disappeared from the public eye, but he really, ever since his playing career came to an end, and even during his playing career, he was really just marred by an inability to stay out of trouble. He ranks in the top 10 historically of basically every scoring or passing category that you could possibly think of.
1: Even though things didn't work out with the pros or anything like that, to be a guy who had to walk on at a couple of different programs, who had to go to a boarding school for an extra year of high school or go to a community college and things like that to land in high-profile college football, even though it was only like a two-year stretch of dominance to be able to do that, spending it in Hawaii. Could
0: be any- worse things. Yeah, that must have yeah. been pretty great. You're right. And if he had had any semblance of an NFL career, he would be... A legend you know he would be remembered forever
1: i'm pretty sure he and colt mccoy were were in college around the same time and so i was like hey they've got the same name and that was about the extent to which i thought of colt brennan
2: well that's my final point on colt brennan i love colt mccoy like the texas quarterback being named colt mccoy is like basically as perfect as it gets but i just think colt is the best quarterback name so colt brennan is like also right up there in terms of the best quarterback names
1: and they got to dominate college football at the same time. The same time. Oh, what a great era!
2: We have yeah, Dix with it. Dix near the three-point line. He'll drive in. Goes in the lane. Puts it up. No good. Nixon puts it in. Tipped in by Barry Nixon. That's two hundred points. Barry Nixon scores the two hundred point of the game. And now we're going to go to the first non-player to be canonized. If you are interested in coaching the system you must either be desperate or crazy. Dr. George Barber was neither desperate nor crazy, but when administration at his tiny 944 student Methodist University in rural Illinois asked him to find a way to draw more interest and talent to his basketball program, he certainly must have thought they were crazy. Barber has been the coach of the Greenville University Panthers since 1999. And for 16 years, the former Rick Pitino assistant who doubles as a tenured kinesiology professor has coached the team like most modern coaches. He taught his players to play with pace, shoot the three, and get to the free throw line. Greenville was solid but unspectacular, finishing with a record of about 500 every season and cracking 100 points every once in a blue moon. Enter the system. The system has just one main tenet. Play every minute like it's your last. Press every possession and crash the offensive boards. Shoot whenever you get a look. At first, it seemed like the system wasn't going to work. Everybody told Barber, first of all, you won't win. And secondly, you're going to embarrass yourself and your school. And third, defense wins championships. Barbara replied, when people score 125 points against us, all we have to do is score 126. In their first 13 games running the system in 2015, Greenville scored over 100 points in 11 contests. But their opponents, feasting on wide open fast break layups, won 11 of these 13 contests. But then, as conference play entered full swing, something clicked. The system began working. Greenville went on an 11-1 run to finish the season and ended at a record of 13-13. and For the last five seasons, Barber and Greenville have been running up the score, winning four straight regular season conference championships. And in the last four seasons, Greenville has scored over 100 points in all but three of their 108 games. Greenville has led the nation in scoring four straight seasons at any level, including last season, where their 135.1 points per game broke the NCAA record for the best scoring offense ever. As the records continue to pile up, the gym started to fill. There have been multiple appearances of the Panthers on SportsCenter, and somehow Barber has done the unthinkable, putting Greenville on the map. Watch them play, and it's not so hard to find their secret to success. Other programs worship the whim. At Greenville, they worship the system.
1: How the hell did you find out about this? Oh my gosh.
2: So I was just looking at random D3 college basketball stats, and I saw this basketball team was averaging 135 points per game. And it just jumped off the page. So I had to just start doing more research about it, and it's just insane. Basic idea is you just press every possession and you shoot as soon as you get the ball. But there are kind of some numbers associated with it. So the intent is to shoot within 12 seconds of getting the ball on offense. And they try to take 100 shots per game, including 50 threes, and grab at least 35% of offensive rebounds. They're trying to shoot basically 25 more times than their opponent. And so it doesn't really matter if their shots are good or bad because they're just jacking up so many shots. They're getting around to score them no matter what.
0: I feel like I need to see this in action. I It's yeah, unbelievable.
2: Crazy. And so get, watching films of this game is like one of the most unbelievable things. And you, you can barely find film of it because it's this random D3 school. They have 900 students in a 300-person arena, and they're like selling out all their games now. And when you're playing this crazy style, they, they have to play like basically hockey shifts. So they have platoons of five guys. They have three lines, basically. And they just sub them on and off every three to five minutes. What they do is they have a 30-man roster. And there are 17 guys who suit up for every game. And you can kind of play your way onto the lines and stuff during practice.
0: I just but, found a picture of their team, like a team portrait, and it's the biggest basketball team I've ever seen. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, it's the biggest basketball team in the country. They can only suit up 17. They'd suit up more than 17, I think, if they were allowed. I mean, you look at their season stats. They've got 11 guys, I think, who average between 20 and 11 minutes per game. And no one averages more than 20.
0: How do you convince a recruit or anyone in general to come and play like this?
2: I mean the so the players kind of rave about how much they love the system. They're just like it's so much fun. And the coach is like, I'll never critique my players for taking a bad shot. They can do whatever the hell they want. And so these players are like, Yeah, it's great. We can just shoot 30 foot threes all the time, press every play. They have so much fun. I mean, they're not so talented. They're playing D three basketball. It's not basketball.
1: like any of the guys that come here. Are really trying to play high level pro basketball beyond their college. So they might as well have fun for four years and jack up threes and play basketball like it's hockey.
2: It's really insane. They've got nine double digit scores last season. They run up the score, they score like 135 points per game, but no one scores more than 20 points. You look at the box score from a game, the leading scorer will have 24 points and the team will have scored 135. And you're like, whoa, how did that happen?
0: It's like communist basketball almost, where you don't have a star and you really can't have a star because in the system, you can't be on the court long enough to put up big stats. You totally have to give in.
2: He was like, we don't care if we win or lose the game. If we stick to the system, that's a win for us. Only meaning to, it
1: doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game.
2: <laughs> it really does. The craziest thing about Greenville is their rivalry with the Fontbon Griffins, which I will contend is the greatest rivalry in college basketball right now. You can take your Duke North Carolinas, I will take my Fontbon Griffins versus the Greenville Panthers. So in this 2017-18 season, Fontbon beat Greenville in an overtime game, 164 to 154. Now at the time, this was the highest combined score for a basketball game ever. And of course, Greenville had the highest score for a losing team in any basketball game. So that really sucks. You put up 154 points, you somehow lose the game. It's the most points anyone's ever scored and lost. Fontbonne's 5-7 guard, Chris McCann, dropped 43 points on you. You couldn't guard a 5-7 guard. And so, I mean, this whole thing probably really pissed off Greenville. So they came back in 2018-19 on senior night, and they just put a whooping on Fontbonne. With six minutes to go, Greenville had already scored 173 points. And Fontbonne was kind of keeping pace with them. Like Fontbonne had like, you know, 120, 125. And, you know, Greenville only knows how to play one way, and that's 100 miles an hour. If they take their foot off the gas, they're worried they're going to blow the lead. So they just kind of keep their pedal to the metal. And all of a sudden, they realize the minute or two to go, they've got like 195 points. So they start intentionally fouling and, and, and they start like playing the free throw game and trading possessions, even though they're up by like 50 at this point. And eventually, right before time expires, they hit a layup to give them 200 points, beating Fontbonne 200 to 146. Their leading score only is 38 points. Wow. How many double-digit scores did do they have? Eight guys in double digits. They had two guys over 30 and one guy over 20. In order to fit that many
0: points into a single game, either the first or second guy to touch the ball is taking a shot no matter what.
2: And the opposing team has to play like about as fast as you do. Fontbonne plays the pretty high tempo. They certainly don't play the system, but they in their non-Greenville games also average like 85, 90 points a game. So that's why I think makes these games conducive to it is that Fontbonne's already running. So you're kind of running with them. But it's pretty crazy that Fontbonne lost a game by over 50 points that they shot 63% in. But the best thing, the best thing about this game is the disparity in three point attempts. So Fontbond shoots 11 three pointers. Any guesses as to how many threes Greenville shot? 65.
0: Gotta be, I'll go 53.
2: 91. Oh my God. They got outshot from three, 91 to 11. (laughs) Oh my God. They have taken basketball and they have pushed it as far. Far as it can go. How many did they make? They made 33 of 91. That's pretty good. Still a reasonable percentage. Yeah, 36% it's from three. They're not bad shooters.
0: Even when you scale basketball up like that, the percentages still roughly
2: still stay roughly the same. It's not like they're making more or less. That's what the coach is like. He's like, we're not actually doing anything that's different. You you think that we're like completely changing basketball. We're not doing anything. We're just doubling basketball. We don't play bad defense. We lead the nation in forced turnovers. Anyone
1: can buy into a system where you jack up a bunch of threes and you take the first shot, but like you really got to get players to buy in if they're going to press every single possession.
2: This season, they split the regular season series with another overtime game that was crazy. But Then they met in the conference semifinals with Greenville winning 164, 148 in regulation, which marks the third game these two teams have played that is in the top five for combined score ever. They oh, hold one, hard. two, and four, I think, in terms of combined points. But the thing I want to talk about next is, you know, kind of the most famous example of a team using the system in a, in a college basketball brawl made popular by John Boyce, which is the Troy State DeVry game. And so Greenville has done a lot of talking about Troy State DeVry because most people consider Troy State DeVry to be the highest combined score. And if you've noted, I've been saying that these Greenville games are the highest combined score.
1: Right, I was going to ask about that because like Troy State DeVry was like 250-some to 140-some.
2: Yeah, so Troy State was a Division II program, but DeVry was like not really NCAA-officially sanctioned. They were basically like a barnstorming team. Troy State has 258 points. That's the record for most points in a game. But the combined score that is credited for the Troy State-DeVry game is 258 points.
1: That still must land like around like 10 or
2: something. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that Troy State managed to do that. But also, I mean, kind of firing shots at Troy State, the people in the Greenville program contend there's been three instances where a team has scored 200 points in an NCAA game. There's a Troy State game, and then there was one other team, Lincoln, beat ohio state marion 201 to 78 which is also ridiculous but ohio state marion was also kind of a fake basketball program and so greenville is like the only team that scored 200 points in like a real game like they scored 200 points against a conference rival these guys must
1: finish like one two most years right in the conference not necessarily
2: really no No, I mean, Greenville has had a lot of success at the conference. As I said, they won the regular season title the last four seasons, but they've only won the conference tournament once. So they haven't actually gone to the D3 NCAA tournament that often. That kind of makes sense that the system doesn't really hold up in
1: tournament play.
2: Yeah, especially when you're playing so many games back-to-back and stuff. But that's why they've got the 30-man roster, so they can plug people in and and take people out.
0: And the other thing that I was thinking about is recruiting. If you're going to... Feel the team that's that large, to me, that seems like a huge volume of pretty competent basketball players that you have to recruit to your program.
2: So they wanted to have a JV basketball team. And the coach was worried. He was like, if, if people are playing JV, they're just not going to be interested in the program. They're not going to buy into what I'm trying to coach them. So we came up with a system where all 30 people had to be involved.
1: And those 30 people, by the way, make up 3.3% of the student body.
2: <laughs> I've made it a personal mission of mine that I would like to go to a Greenville Font-Bond game in the coming year.
1: At some like point, three. they're going to get to a 200-200 overtime game.
2: The system has been you know, implemented by other coaches, and they always didn't theorize that 200 points was maybe possible. But it just seems like what the system does is, is it doubles a basketball game. And it's hard to go beyond doubling it. You can get to 150, it's really, really hard to get to 200. The other thing that I I think is kind of interesting is they did play St. Louis one year, which is like a real basketball program, A-10, and they kind of got schlack. They lost 120 to 84. I mean, they are a D3 program. So, you know, read into that how you will. People might hypothesize the system is like a way to like better cause upsets. I'm not clear that's particularly true.
0: I think if you run up against a team that physically has better athletes, you can't swarm of locusts them out of a
1: basketball game. It's got to be a team that like really cracks under the press.
2: The conference that they play in is the SLIAC, the St. Louis Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. It sounds like a disease. I think that a lot of these schools at least play with pace or do something. Or their numbers are just ridiculously inflated from their two games where they score 120, 130 points. Because every team in the SLIAC, except for one, scores over 85 points per game which seems really high for college basketball. But there is one team that seems to especially run, outside of Bon, who who scores 94 points per game, there's another school that scores 95 points per game, and perhaps the best-named college in the country, Eureka. And they've often beaten Greenville. If you look at the Eureka games, they're always scoring in the 150s, and, and a lot of times Eureka is the one pulling it out, like winning 160 to 130. They beat Fontbonne at one point, 161 to 153, which is like another top-10 scoring game of all time. But Eureka kind of also inspired me. So, I mean, if you just look up and down the Greenville schedule, there are some hilarious D3 names. Another SLIAC team is Spaulding. They're also the worst school in the SLIAC. Of course they are. And, and the fact that Spaulding is a bad basketball school is really a bad omen. Uh, Greenville plays Transylvania every year. <laughs> Only
0: at night. I bet they snuck.
2: <laughs> they play a school named Defiance. <laughs> Division three college basketball is just the gift that keeps on giving. I will close on this. So one of the opponents that Greenville has had is Grinnell. And when people think of crazy Division Three teams, Grinnell is probably second. The coach at Grinnell is one of the coaches who's kind of credited with originating the system. And as we kind of talked about earlier, the system is kind of communist in that you know, it's about spreading the wealth and whatever. Grinnell does not really play that way. Grinnell plays the system, but they have one guy who they just build the entire offense around, and he plays the ultimate version of hero ball. So Grinnell like, has people who averaged 35, 40 points per game over the course of the season. And one time they had a guy named Jack Taylor who scored 138 points all by himself.
0: I heard of this guy. I remember this. I remember
1: seeing this.
2: Yeah, this is more well-known than the Greenville stuff. Jack Taylor is kind of a, you know, a cult legend. He scored over yes. 100 points twice in his career. So they, they played each other once and Grinnell won 151 to 121. So they kind of proved that their version of the system was better. So Greenville has led the nation in scoring from 15 to 20. Grinnell has led the nation in scoring all but twice, from 94 to 15. And as what happens when Greenville meets another team that plays with pace, they broke another NCAA record. Grinnell attempted the most free throws ever attempted in a college basketball game. How many free throw attempts do we think? If
0: they shot 91 threes that one game, then I'm going to go 71. What? No, I
2: think like 180. Did you look that up? Grinnell shot a 71 free throws. Oh, 54 really? 54 for 71. Oh, take that. Are you kidding hey, me? Wow. Gosh. Yeah, I, so they broke this free throw record, which is also crazy. I mean, that's one of the things about when you press so much is your opponents just shoot a ridiculous number of free throws. So like, it's not uncommon for Greenville opponents to shoot like 40 free throws a game, but 71 is kind of absurd. A third of their points came from the charity stripe, and they scored 151 points. The final thing of of some intrigue, I mentioned in my introduction that the coach uh, George Barber was a former Rick Pitino assistant. So he was an assistant coach at Kentucky, and he was on the same coaching staff as Frank Vogel, Dwayne Casey, and Billy Donovan, all of whom have gone on to coach in the NBA. But he's like still friends with these guys, and they often like call him and whatever, and he's like trying to get them to implement the system. And he was joking that when Rick Pitino comes back to, to coach, that he used the system in his new job.
0: And then you guys like Tony Bennett who are cutting
2: basketball in half. I'd love to see a, a Greenville-Virginia game, or maybe just a system versus Virginia game.
1: I have a feeling that Virginia would drag the system down, kicking and screaming with them. And we <laughs> Virginia see, is just
2: a black hole for offense. Yeah, We would
1: see the system get rendered useless to like a 60-point output.
0: I feel like that would have to occur in a lab, though. I feel like actual fans shouldn't be allowed to see that, just in case like something like exploded or something. Radioactive material spewing off the basketball courts, because it's such a clash of two styles.
2: Yeah, but fans should watch Greenville Bond next year, and I'm going to make an effort to do so. The only thing that's guaranteed, is going to be one hell of a ride.
1: Well, like I said, we expanded the powers of the canon in this episode by inducting a non-baseball player, inducting a non-player altogether, a game, a system, whatever you want to call it. I hope everyone tunes in again for episode five of the canon. We'll see you next time. <laughs>